Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. And it's great to be back with you at our regular time on a Friday evening. We'll soon hear from the newly appointed Roman Catholic Archbishop-elect of Dublin, Most Reverend Dr. Dermot Farrell. This week, RT acknowledged that a satirical sketch broadcast on a New Year's Eve countdown television programme did not comply with RTE's own standards and broader regulations regarding due respect for religious beliefs. In a statement, RTE said that it was its view that satire is an important part of the offering to its audience. It added, and I quote, However, satire, no more than any other aspect of the station's output, must adhere to our own standards and the standards set out in the Broadcasting Act 2009 and the BAI codes. RTE has issued an apology and removed the sketch from the RTE player. Later, we'll talk with John Horne, Emeritus Professor of European History at Trinity College Dublin, on the role of satire, offence and free speech. But first, Pope Francis has appointed the Most Reverend Dr Dermot Farrell, until now Bishop of Ossory, as the new Archbishop of Dublin. Joining me earlier from his home, I asked him to tell me more about the man behind the title. I'm from a place called Garty, Castleton Gagan, County Westmead. Uh, I was born in 1954. I'm the eldest of uh, seven children, six of whom are alive. Um, I was born into a farming family and I was I went to school locally in the, in the local schools in Castleton Gagan and Streamstown. And then I went to secondary school in St. Fingers College, Mullingar. And then I went on to Maynooth after that. Ordained in 1980, would you have had any idea that you might be looking at the position that you're about to enter? Not the foggiest idea. I, you know, when I was ordained in 1980, I, I suppose I was just about familiar with the basic structures of the church in terms of there were bishops and priests and some religious orders, but uh, you weren't even thinking in those terms. I ended up after ordination, I was doing master's in my license for the first year, but I was also working in a parish at the same time. I'm thinking about that young priest in 1980 and, and what ideas he might have had that might have upset his bishop or his archbishop. I probably hadn't too many. <laughs> I don't think he had too many uh, ideas that were upsetting uh, the bishop at that time because it was, I suppose you just got on with it. Some of the things that come to the fore only were beginning to come to the fore in the, you know, the mid-80s in terms of, I suppose, secularisation and uh, things now that are regularly discussed in, in the media, etc. But they, they certainly weren't there uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. The, the world was very, and Ireland at that stage was a very kind of fixed world, a very, uh, you know, limited world in some sense. You know, you could, at that time, thinking back, you know, you could visit houses in the parish at that time and you could visit every house just almost nearly assuming they were all cats and you, you couldn't take that for an assumption today. Uh, but yet some of those houses might still like to be or consider themselves Catholic but might be disenfranchised for the want of a better word. Yes, no, no, I'm, well, I'm not saying that there were, I don't, when I say we could visit more, they weren't necessarily all practising but you know, because everybody didn't even practice in the 1980s, but uh, some of them do consider themselves uh, disenfranchised for one reason or another, and probably there's more disenfranchisement in recent years than there was back then. But that time, the, the, everybody was almost culturally Catholic as well as, you know, practice, whereas now you have the last parish I was in, I think it was 25% of that parish not Catholic at all. That, that's a significant change. The Irish Times recently referred to your role as that of managing decline. Is that how you see it? I mean, why is the Catholic Church in decline in Dublin? Well, I don't think it's in decline just in Dublin. There, there are less numbers 
factors in their states. Uh, you know, the, the, the demographics have changed uh, in terms of people who have come into our, con- our country who are uh, not Catholic. There are people who have ceased to be Catholic. In you know, the, uh, you know, the biggest group in Ireland now after the Catholics are probably the Romanian Orthodox, and that's that's a change. You know, when when I was uh, young, there was it was very homogeneous uh, populations, was largely Catholic. Some of it was. You know, practice, I suppose, out of habit. Uh, but uh, things have changed in the country, and there's less practice. But there's there's also a value or a, an opportunity in that people are are more committed now uh, in terms of to practice your faith. Now you have to be able to defend it as well, and you have to articulate in some sense why you're practicing. And there is a cost in that in terms of, uh, you know, you might find yourself ridiculed by sometimes by your colleagues or even by some of your friends because you practice. So you you have to stand up and be counted. Closer to home here, the events that happened with the New Year's Eve sketch on television, people were, were very quick and wanted to show how upset and offended they were. Yeah, because it was it was a very offensive uh, sketch. There's no doubt about that. It was offensive on uh, two levels. It was offensive on uh, the way that the divine was portrayed. Uh, and it was also uh, uh, offensive in terms of the uh, treatment of the way it looked at rape and glorifying rape, you know, which is uh, absolutely, I was horrified by that. What about the argument that people put back of, of satire? Well, you know, there, there is, a, there is, I suppose, there is always a place for satire and uh, entertainment. But uh, when entertain, you can't entertain at the expense. You think of the number of uh, people, men and women, who have been raped in this country or are bearing the wounds of that violation of their person. And uh, I don't think there's any place for satire in terms of making fun of that or trying to to make a joke of it. Should, should it lead to? Maybe some discourse then. If if it's very clear that there's there's a diverse diversity of opinion, is it an opportunity for further discourse? There is a, there is a, a discourse to be had around you know it, in terms of entertainment, uh, but um, making a mockery of God is hardly uh, you know something that we need to have a lot of discourse around. I think, or indeed, um, you know, when I think of the the number of women, for example, who have. Uh, being raped and some men who have been raped and then you find that being made fun of uh, I, I couldn't think of anything uh, worse for them in you know looking at that or seeing that on television opening up all of these wounds again The other thing that is fascinating is that you've spoken about your openness to women deacons and married clergy what, what's the what's the impetus behind that? No, well, the 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 issue of women deacons, uh, as you know, Pope Francis, I think, at some time ago, asked the International Theological Commission to do a paper on women deacons and trying to, I suppose, uh, look at the history of women deacons in the church uh, to evaluate what they were doing. Then he then set up subsequently sent up a commission. Uh, with sort of terms of reference to look at them. And there's another commission looking at it. So I'm only looking at those uh, discussions, if you like, that are going on in the church around uh, women deacons. The Orthodox Church is interesting, I think, in that you, you have referenced it even twice already in our chat. Uh, is there something uh, about the possibility of a reconciliation, do you think, between those churches? Yeah, there's always the, the possibility of, you know, where uh, the split came in 1054, um, and, you know, we, there, there was always this, what I call the East and West uh, wing to, to the church. And there are, I'm sure, I'm not involved in those, but I'm certain there are discussions going on on 
uh, between, and they're uniate Orthodox, as you know as well, and uh, there are, I think, 16 churches that are sui generis and Orthodox. If you're ever, uh, for example, at liturgies in the Holy See, you'll see various Orthodox uh, people from the East there who are in union with Rome. So it's it's natural enough that there would be other discussions with the other Orthodox churches. We we had a guest on our Christmas Day programme who talked about her return to her faith after leaving it for a number of years. And she said that she found it you know particularly engaging to go back with questions and have those questions asked. Is that uh, the, the the Catholic Church that, that exists now, where a person can come back and ask questions. Yes, I think because if you want to deepen your faith, the best way to deepen your faith is to actually to ask questions. You know, that's how any that's how my faith was deepened. It's how any anybody who has a deeper faith they they will ask questions. They try and answer those. Uh, questions and it's right that they should ask them and, and that should get answers uh, rather than you know I suppose in the past uh, we were very often told well, this is it this is what you believe you know get on with it don't ask questions but the, the, the way the thing now is dialogue is important even you know we're in schools you know in terms of our catechetical programs we encourage uh, uh, pupils to ask questions and try and have those questions answered so it is important in terms of the deepening of one's faith and you would say uh, I mean historically that wouldn't have been the case where people were less inclined to ask I don't think them. so you know I'm thinking back to my own time in primary school you know where you learned by rote and you didn't you weren't really I don't think I don't think we were encouraged to ask questions but that, but that has changed I think that has changed yes mm. and you know that's an adult way of, of doing business because if some adult comes comes into me or into a priest and wants to discuss their faith, I think all priests would be more than willing to sit down and have a, a good conversation with them and try and uh, answer their questions. Because you know, what's that person trying to do? They're trying to discern what's the you know what their faith is, uh, what's their relationship with God, and that's that's done in, in a dialogue and and in a discernment process and. You know, nobody better prepared and equipped to do that and to conduct uh, those discussions with them than the, the priests in the country. What about the idea, too, that we still have a number of people who are still carrying a great deal of hurt and, and a great deal of anger towards the faith that we're maybe born into? Uh, what, what are your, your words to somebody who's still angry and still cross? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I suppose I can understand why people are, are angry. They have uh, sometimes they've been uh, very... Uh, hurt uh, because of what's uh, happened to them in life um, and that's, uh, that has produced uh, the hurt if you like uh, and made it uh, very very difficult for them uh, in life and they've been carrying these uh, issues and hurts uh, for so long in their life. I suppose the important thing is that you know the church does care about people that we have to accept people who are the, who, the way they are and it's from that acceptance that change uh, comes when, you know, people are accepted and you accept the hearts and you listen to them. It's important to listen to them. I think very often in the past, we didn't listen to victims. You know, people who were hurt for one reason or another, the hearts were often dismissed. Uh, and that uh, further deepened the heart. There's a great awareness now uh, that uh, we listen to people, we allow them to express the heart and that we accept them as the, as they are. And that, that takes time, and hopefully that healing will come out of that as well. With any, with hope and indeed with good fortune, we may see churches reopening again and the pandemic once again coming under control. That's going to be a, a very interesting and challenging process, isn't it, to bring people back uh, to the full, full services that they had? 
Yes, it, it, it is indeed because um, uh, you can see the, the challenges at the moment that we are being brought about by the uh, aggressive virus that's circulating so widely in our community. You know, we have to play our part as a church, uh, particularly at level five, in trying to protect people. The virus will pass when a vaccination program is uh, rolled out across the country. And, you know, I saw a survey which said that about 4% mightn't ever come back. That may be true, but that's uh, a small percentage of the overall number. I think people who uh, are faith people, people who pray, will want to express their faith publicly. In, in other words, through the celebration of the Eucharist and through uh, prayer and community. So, but it will take a bit of effort. I think the, the, what militates against it is people are nervous, they're fearful because they're afraid they'll contract the virus. Priests are fearful as well because, you know, they're the ones in the community as well. So there is a fear there that you, you pick up this. I have two priests in the diocese here at the moment who have COVID, one in intensive care and another ill. And we lost one priest earlier in the year. Small, we've only... Uh, little over what forty something active priests and three of them have caught the virus. Being with people, that's what happened. They were with people through liturgies or uh, funerals or some. You know, sometimes it's not all together clear where they picked it up, but they did pick it up. And ultimately, as the government keeps telling us over and over again, the way you pick up this virus is by being with people in groups or in community, and that's something that goes against the grain for all of us because we are a, a social people. You know, we love to socialise, we love to go out for a meal, we love to go to people's homes, we love to hug people, to shake hands with them, and that's the very way the virus thrives. So we're be, the most natural thing that we want to do are the things that we've been told not to do right now, and that's you know, to prevent the spread of the virus, and that's as it should be. But that takes a lot of learning. You know, I was out in the street uh, there this morning, and somebody came up to congratulate me. And the first thing he does is put out his hand to shake hands naturally. And I had to say to him, "No, let's let's not do that for your good and for my good, because you just don't know." Archbishop elect Dermot Farrell, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith. Not at all, Michael. Thank you. Thanks. Earlier this week, RTE referred itself to the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland following thousands of complaints regarding the television sketch which was referred to in my interview with Archbishop-elect Dr Dermot Farrell. Time was when it was commonplace for the Church to prescribe books, films and television programmes and to call out presenters and comedians from the pulpit. In 2018, however, Ireland voted to scrap its blasphemy law. So where are we now? How do we reconcile the tension between freedom of speech and protecting religious sensibilities? I'm joined by John Horne, Emeritus Professor of European History at Trinity College Dublin. John, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Can I begin by asking you to put in context, from an historian's perspective, the experience we've gone through in the last week and the feeling that people have a sense of outrage? Well, I think the the sense of outrage uh, goes in tandem with uh, belief, religious belief and, and, and other kinds of belief. But since beliefs matter, then people get outraged when they're, they're challenged. Um, and so learning to live both with the, the, the right and indeed the need to express beliefs, but also um, uh, uh, living with the, the, the feeling of outrage, the feeling that one might be outraged. And I would say the need to kind of learn a little bit not to be offended, not to be outraged, I think is very important. But how societies do that, how they go about it, uh, uh, varies. Uh, we could take two extremes. We know that, that there are certain fundamentalist societies, um, parts of the Middle East, for example, in which blasphemy, 
expresses that outrage in the form of a law, which in some cases carries the death penalty. You cannot say, even if you can think, you cannot say these things out aloud in the public sphere. If we go to the other end of the spectrum, I suppose it, it would be France. France, for reasons that go back to the French Revolution and the clash with the Catholic Church. But when the Republic was firmly established, um, oh, a century and a quarter ago, a quarter ago in 1881, then blasphemy was eliminated as a crime. As a, as, a, as a legal notion. And so in the French uh, uh, way of understanding these things, everybody has the right freely to practice their own beliefs, their own religious beliefs, and indeed to uniting communities in order to do that. But at the same time, everybody also has the right to criticize and to pillory, to talk about in whatever fashion they see fit, the beliefs of other people. And so that notion of both freedom and tolerance is... Um, not an exclusively French thing, but something which the French have had much more experience than most of us in dealing with. Is there not an element, though, that if you are going to engage in, in a level of criticism, which which is even, as many cases, part of the academic process, is that there would be an element of finesse in it? it, it what offends more? Is it sometimes the, the challenge to the person's thinking or the actual delivery of that, of that challenge? Well, that's a good point. And that brings us right on to the issue of satire, I think. I mean, just to go to the very recent case in, in Ireland on New Year's Eve, the, the satirical sketch on God and abuse and so on, would it have been different had it been, it would have been very boring, but would it have been different had it been a, a level discussion? Was it the fact that it was satire humour which gets under the guard and which forces us all, I think, to, to, to query our, our, our shibboleths, and sometimes it does it with finesse, as you put it, and sometimes it does it rather crudely? Is it a matter of um, a, a satire, in other words, the way of delivery which caused the offence? So certainly we've got a range of ways, of means, if you like, of, of talking about these issues in the public sphere, from satire to debate to actual protest, organised protest. And all of those things, I think, are part of the civic sphere, which uh, a civilised and pluralist and democratic society constructs for itself. But historically, uh, we've had various different things that we've had to go at. I mean, if you look back at the history of uh, of television, we would have had Hall's Pictorial Weekly, which which started to bring county councillors uh, to, to people's yes. focus through satire. Uh, and then we moved on to, to the more present day where we have uh, things like Callan's Kicks. You, you make a point, which I thought was really interesting, about sometimes that in Ireland we've tended to allow other people to do our satire for us. Well, it depends which kind of satire. You know, I think that the examples you give, um, going back to Hall's Pictorial Weekly, um, show that we've actually developed a very robust tradition of political satire and comedy in this country. And I think we've all benefited from that. But because of the importance of the sacred in, in all societies and the relationship of the sacred to the power of Catholicism in Ireland, it's taken us much longer to do that. And I think our satire has been much, much more circumspect there. And it does seem to me that in that regard, there is quintessential Irish satire about both the institution of religion and the beliefs of religion, but it tends to have been made offshore in the United Kingdom. So if you go back to Dave Allen in the household name by the 1980s, but in the UK, of course, watched from Ireland, but in the UK, head on attacking both religion uh, uh, institutionally, but also in terms of its beliefs and dogmas. And even, I think we shouldn't forget that uh, the wonderful Father Ted series, which has perhaps been, with its affectionate edge, has been more about the institution of religion than about the beliefs, although sometimes it's about the beliefs. That, of course, was made by Hattrick Productions for Channel 4 in Britain. It's as if in, in this area of satire on religion, we in Ireland have benefited, as we have in certain other areas, uh, from having a more liberal neighbour. 
Can you expand a little bit more on this idea of the power of the sacred? It's an awful phrase, the sacred cow, but that, that there are, are there still things that, that you believe would be still sacred and that nobody would go near? I think that inevitably uh, and almost by definition, um, there are things which are and always will be sacred, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go near them. That's the distinction that I draw. What I feel is that the, the ultimate mysteries of life and the mysteries of who we are as um, human beings, those our origins and our ends, those are questions of the sacred. And all societies have addressed those in different ways. Organized religion has actually only been one of the ways, very important way, but in more recent times, only one of the ways of addressing those issues. So the sacred is always there, it seems to me. But if the sacred is expressed very differently by different people in the same society, then the sacred itself becomes pluralist. Let me just give you an example. Many Christian believers would believe, and many religious believers more generally, would believe that God created humankind. I believe the opposite. It seems to me that humankind invented God. We simply don't know what the ultimate mystery is, but in order to fill that space very creatively, we invent gods and myths of various kinds. So to come back to the figure and the, the, the issue on, on New Year's Eve, the skit, um, uh, which was absolutely taken apart at a very sacred figure, the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary has a sacred and central place in Christianity as um, a foundation myth of how God came to earth. For me, as an atheist, I look at it, and for me, it's a very powerful story, but it's one which humans have invented themselves in order to explain their own origins. And it's only one of those myths. There are many, many more. And that means that I have a very different stance to it than others. So when the sacred is plural, when we have different versions of the sacred, we both have to learn how to respect each other's versions, but also have to take how to take other people's criticisms of our own versions. I suppose for me, the bottom line is that nobody and no single organization has a monopoly on the sacred. John, is it possible that freedom can ultimately oppress? I think there is that danger. And wouldn't it be ironic if we arrived at that situation having abolished blasphemy? Is it the case that the, that the freedom of speech, the freedom to, to engage in polemic and uh, satire can actually be oppressive, might actually ironically put us back in a position in which certain groups in society feel oppressed, actually are oppressed? It's interesting in that regard that the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops in Ireland didn't oppose the 2018 uh, referendum uh, eliminating blasphemy on the grounds that blasphemy could be used in certain parts of the world to oppress religious minorities. I think they were probably thinking about the position of Christianity in certain Islamic countries. It, so it would be very ironic if we ended up in that position. And I think uh, there is that possibility. We could engage in either polemic or satire in a way which did pointlessly destroy, tear down other people's faiths and identities. And I think that would be a very bad thing. So the onus is on the people who are debating, who are creating the satire, to ensure that in some way this is constructive, that at the end of the day, it produces self-reflection, that it produces a dialogue. In other words, that it's part of the civic culture. So how we do that, how we build up that civic culture, and how we do it both respectfully and critically, it seems to me one of the central tasks that we have. I find it a very exciting one in contemporary Ireland. In, in a decade, it seems to me that we've come back, we've come from being a, in cultural terms, still a somewhat repressed society. We've leapt to the forefront of uh, liberal pluralist societies with a, with a more or less secular, with a secular state. So how we proceed from that to put it this way, construct civic rules of engagement 
in which all of these issues, not just political power, but the sacred and the power that goes with the sacred and different belief systems, how those are all up for debate, all up for criticism, all up for laughing, without any of us feeling that we are um, uh, uh, being oppressed is a really, really important uh, task. And I would just say in conclusion on that, that there is a difference between being offended and being oppressed. A lot of people at the moment, I think, talk about feeling oppressed in their religious beliefs. I think that they're simply feeling offended because these beliefs are now being challenged in a way that perhaps they weren't before. We all, I think, have to learn how to develop a slightly thicker skin and to deal with our own feeling of being offended, but recognize that, unless it really is the case, that we're not actually being oppressed. I, I suppose the, the thought that pops into my mind really here is that if the person of faith is simply using their faith to hold on to their beliefs, they may not feel they need anything else in order to defend that belief. That's right. And of course, they're perfectly entitled to, um, uh, to, to, you know, to adopt that position. They don't have to listen to the polemic. They don't have to engage with the satire. They don't have to do a whole range of things which are permissible in our society, but which they might feel contravene their own religious beliefs. That's part of the freedom. There's a whole range of things that you don't have to do. Including being offended. Including being offended. Just while we're talking about the idea of satire, some other countries in Europe have dealt with this in many different ways. Denmark, and, and I'm coming back again to your area of expertise in France. What, what is the distinction that they have in, in how they deal with it? Well, I think in the, it, 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 it's perhaps a, a, a cultural question. I sometimes felt as an example of um, oppressive use of satire that in, in uh, the Netherlands, in Denmark, certain of the publications of the um, cartoons of the prophet, which of course contravened um, uh, Islamic tenets, were done simply with the aim of oppressing and inflaming is Islamic feeling. In the case of um, Charlie Hebdo um, in, in France, one of the things which was rarely said at the time is that in its anti-clericalism, its secularism, Charlie Hebdo was absolutely Catholic in the old sense of the term. That's to say, it was it, it took pot shots at all religions universally, and yeah. universally, and, and and indeed starting with with Catholicism. And there's an, a long tradition of that in France of satirical writings and satirical journals which have been anti-clerical going back at least a hundred years. Uh, and the French, um, I think, in a much more um, assertive and positive way, feel that the right to 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 do that and the right of those with beliefs to do the reverse. I would love to see some satire uh, while we're talking about this, some satire at the expense of atheists. I think we're ripe um, for being taken out by satire. I'd love to see it. Just as John, like... that, that may be a sacred cow at the moment. <laughs> it may be a sacred cow and it shouldn't be. It absolutely shouldn't be. But what I'm saying is that in the French case, there's a particularly strong tradition which is bound up with the notions of the Republic. and The Republic is a free space for all, uh, which was felt to be profoundly under attack in 2015 with the attacks on Charlie Hebdo. Professor John Horne, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. My pleasure. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. Thank you for joining us. From our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, broadcast coordinator, Jonathan Holland, and from me, Michael Cummins. Good night.